there's a war for the heart of the church in America. Um, you know, I know that thinking of the church in America, it's a human construct of nationalism versus a universal church. And yet the church in America is a distinct uh, entity within the fabric of the American landscape. This fight for the heart of the church has its casualties. People are leaving the church in droves um, as a result of uh, the hypocrisy that exists between the way of Jesus versus the way they see it lived out. Others uh, from outside the faith are defining what it means to be Christian based on these white Christian nationalists, uh, drawing the assumption that all Christians are like these people. A war indicates there's two sides. So how how does the other side, the non-white Christian nationalists, fight for the heart of the church? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout-out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Brad Onishi. He's a scholar of philosophy, theology, and American religion with a focus on Christian nationalism and secularism. He hosts the Straight White American Jesus podcast. He's also authored several books, including Preparing for War. He's also contributing to NPR and New York Times, among many others. Brad, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. So, you know, we'll obviously get uh, a full grasp of your PhD-ness uh, as we get into the book here in a little bit. Um, but beyond, you know, book writing and beyond podcast hosting, what, what would you want our audience to know about you? Yeah, you know, I I um, did not grow up in a religious home, but I converted at age 14, and that was at a, a Southern California megachurch. And so uh, my conversion was, was really extreme. I went from a kind of, you know, punk kid to... The person who proselytized outside the movie theater and led a Bible study at his public high school and, you know, that kind of stuff uh, was in ministry uh, at that church by the time I was 18. And then by the time I was 20, was a full time youth pastor uh, married and uh, completing the final two years of, of college uh, over to Zeus Pacific, which is a, an evangelical school in Pasadena or near there. And so 
Uh, from there, I, I went on to graduate school, and that's where things kind of changed, and I really transitioned from ministry and evangelicalism to being a scholar of religion and studying you know, religion and especially Christianity historically and philosophically and sociologically. And so that's the kind of bare outline of my life journey and my kind of spiritual path, and happy to talk any more about that if you'd like, but uh, those are the kind of major points. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, I always like to ask anybody who entered into the church in their teenage years, um, it wasn't motivated by like a, a love interest in any kind of way, was it? It was 100%. <laughs> so, I knew it. <laughs> I, so I was, uh, a, as I said, a punk kid getting in trouble, getting suspended, you know, and um, I had a girlfriend who said, hey, there's a Wednesday night Bible study at this church and some of the kids from school go there and why don't you come? And I thought, this is perfect because my mom is not going to let me out of the house on a weeknight because I'm getting in trouble all the time. But if I tell her it's church, then she's bound to say yes. And a <laughs> uh, girlfriend will be there. So maybe we can go make out and ditch the Bible study. <laughs> um, soon thereafter, she dumped me, but I became a 100% youth group kid was there when they opened the doors for uh, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Wednesday night, Bible study, summer camp, beach day, didn't matter. I wanted to be there. And so a uh, pretty extreme kind of conversion within six months was just kind of a different kid. But yep, you got me. It was definitely the love interest. So there it is. Well, I will say this, uh, recognizing that I find this to be the most despicable tactic uh, ever. <laughs> and there's all kinds of uh, misogyny and patriarchy that's wrapped up in this. But a friend of mine served on a megachurch here, multi-site megachurch here in North Carolina that will remain nameless, but anybody who has lived in North Carolina knows about it would just, you know, take one guess and know exactly what I'm talking about. At, at a staff meeting, they talked about and leaned into a strategy of they wanted to specifically target um, young adult women, college students, um, because they knew it would bring young guys into the congregation. Oh, my. Um, wow. You know, wow. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. 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 Th so there's th that. This was not, this was like, she, I think she dumped me because I got too into Jesus. Like she was just going to, the, <laughs> she, she was going to the church because it was like a place mom would, her mom would let her go. You know what I mean? So, um, but I, I, that's a despicable story. I can't believe a church would do that. That's yeah. wow. Okay. So tell me about this, uh, straight white American Jesus that you've met. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to unmeet him, um, or, or forget him, but, um, you know, so 2018, heart of the Trump years, just like a lot of us trying to figure out how to resist, how to cope, how to do all kinds of things. Had a friend, Dan Miller, uh, who has a very similar story to me, you know, grew up evangelical. He he became a Southern Baptist uh, minister, went to seminary and and the whole thing. Um, we both kind of transitioned out of ministry into academia. And so we we really felt like we had this bifocal lens. We could really talk about living uh, evangelicalism, living uh, in many ways Christian nationalism, but we could also talk about it uh, with a kind of historical focus, a sociological focus, and give people a broader perspective. And so we started the podcast because we felt like too many Americans think Jesus is a straight white American guy who uh, has a complementarian approach to marriage and, uh, you know, maybe has an AR-15 somewhere and uh, all that kind of stuff. So um, we weren't sure anyone would listen, uh, but, you know, we just kind of decided we'd go for it. And four or five years later, um, you know, people people seem to really uh, appreciate the kind of bifocal perspective. So we do it three times a week, and it's really become kind of a passion project for us and something we put our heart and soul into. 
My God, I, I thought it was draining doing, you know, a, a one once a week podcast. You do yeah. three <laughs> three times a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, you know, my wife will tell you I'm I'm full of hot air. So it, it's got to go <laughs> somewhere. And she'd rather go to the microphone than, you know, dinner table. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I'm sure um, your experience has been similar to mine that um, if if a podcast was a revolve around you as an individual, I'm not as interesting as it needs to be for this thing to have been ex in existence for uh, seven years now. But it's uh, bringing on people like you. Uh, there's been plenty of content that's uh, out there in the world for us to talk about and looking at it from a theological lens. So um, it's a great podcast uh, for those listening to this. I highly recommend you do listen to it. Uh, that doesn't mean you substitute listening to ours in order to listen to theirs. So it's a double <laughs> in, double endorsement. That's the deal. That's the deal. Yeah. So you have a new book, uh, Preparing for War. This book examines the history of white Christian nationalism, as well as its implications for the present and for the future. You wrote, the events of January 6, 2021, shocked the nation and the world. But those who lived through white Christian nationalism consumed its media and practiced its teaching. The insurrection was a logical outcome of a 75-year war on American democracy. Uh, let's go back to that starting place of where you draw the well of this history 75 years ago. What's its significance? You know, I you could start this book in a lot of places. I decided to start it in the 1960s for two reasons. Uh, one is the church I grew up in uh, started in the 1960s. And as I looked at that church as a prism, um, I, I realized something that I, I knew intuitively, but as I dug deeper, I just couldn't ignore. And that was that the 1960s are a time when we have major shifts in the country and, and shifts in ways that I think a lot of us think of as positive. Civil rights movement, immigration reform, uh, women's rights. You know, we have the Feminine Mystique published in 1963. Women are entering the workforce in mass. No fault divorce. 1967, the Loving case in Virginia and interracial marriage uh, is kind of federally uh, recognized and protected. Uh, 1969, Stonewall, and uh, queer liberation before and after that. Uh, so I could go on and on about the 60s. Well, what develops in the 60s is not only all of those movements, but a counter-revolution for a, a lot of, you know, white nationalists, uh, you know, patriarchal landowning uh, folks, folks who believe they are the founders of the country. They want to take their country back because they feel like it's been given over to all the folks I just mentioned as interlopers and people who don't deserve it. So you go to the 60s and you realize that the extremism was was rife then. Uh, and it's it, it, it there are new uh, phenomena, you know, in the in the Trump years. But 1964, Barry Goldwater's acceptance speech uh, as the GOP presidential nominee, he says extremism is uh, a virtue and moderation is not uh, extremism is not a vice. It's a good thing. Moderation is a bad thing. As I dug into that history, I realized that Paul Weyrich and the creators of the Heritage Foundation and the Council for National Policy and all the other institutions we think of as kind of part of the right wing uh, politics and cultural spheres really emerged there. And so the 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 desire to take back the country uh, didn't start in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected or 2016 when Trump Trump uh, ran for office. It was something that had been in motion uh, for a long, long time. And so uh, it definitely took different shapes and and had different leaders and faces uh, over those decades. But uh, there's there's a lot of straight lines, in my view, uh, if you if you look at the history in a certain way. You know, I, 
we've we've spoken a great deal about white Christian nationalism um, on the podcast over the last several years with folks like Anthea Butler and Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry and Sarah Posner and Robert P. Jones, just for starters. But I always like to take the time to allow the experts we have on to define white Christian nationalism in their own terms. So I wonder if you'll do that for us. Yeah, and and all those people have inspired my work. Uh, you'll you'll see them quoted in the book, and they're they're friends and colleagues. So this is going to sound, I think, similar to to what they've said. But uh, you know, in addition to kind of some of the scholarly definitions that some of those folks might give, I I have a, a very handy definition I think works, and that is, if you think the country was was built for and by Christians, uh, and and we can put in the white Christian there too. Uh, then you're a Christian nationalist. And and that might sound too simple because it, it that puts a lot of people in that box. But the reason I like to explain it that way is because it, it puts a lot of people in that box. It shows us the everyday nature of Christian nationalism. It's not always militias and insurrectionists. It's not always Proud Boys or Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, if you're sitting in church and you think the country was somehow built by Christians and it was built for Christians uh, in some way that that the God should be on the money and in the in the pledge and uh, we should uh, have a, a, a situation where Congress is 88 uh, percent you know Christian in some way and 40 uh, all 46 of our presidents have been in some form Christian two of them Catholic 44 if you think Fourth in July, Fourth uh, of July uh, is is somehow uh, a Christian event, well, you're a Christian nationalist, and that might sound benign. There might be people in church, old mm -hmm. ladies who you sit next to that you think she's harmless. But I think the thing that that really is important for me in defining it this way is that those folks who you consider harmless are now sitting in pews with people that we would also consider extremists or dangerous or. Uh, those that are willing to march on the Capitol or uh, take out a power grid or, uh, you know, and uh, show up at a, a drag queen story hour with an AR-15. So uh, I like to to talk about it that way just to kind of get us into the quotidian and the, the mundane, because I think that's actually something that can be overlooked if we get uh, too deep into the weeds with the history and the sociology. In many regards, and, and you were alluding to this earlier, this book also envelops your story. I wonder if you'll give us a kind of a peek into that particular angle, you know, talking to us about the process of pulling back the layers of your experience. You know, when I converted, I, I, I was the only Christianity I ever knew was this evangelicalism. Uh, I'm a mixed race person. My dad's Japanese American. My mom's white. It was a 90% white church. Um, I didn't realize until much later how I had been kind of backgrounding uh, certain aspects of myself, how I had been uh, hiding them in many ways as an Asian American, uh, as part of that church culture. Um, I didn't realize how strange it would be that the Christian flag and the American flag would be next to each other and kind of touching in our sanctuary. Uh, you know, so in the book, I tell all kinds of stories from my, my past. I, I, you know, there was a situation where a new music minister took the American flag out of the sanctuary. And one of the men who had helped found the church and had been basically the glue behind the scenes, uh, keeping it together, you know, he, he made that his last Sunday because he wasn't going to attend church if there was no American flag. Um, some of you listening will be familiar with See You at the Pole, a once a year gathering of, of kids, uh, teenagers who pray at their, their, their school's flagpole. And so I definitely did that. But as a convert and a zealot, I didn't think that was good enough. So when I went to high school, I decided I would pray at the flag every Friday. And uh, sometimes a few people join me, but 
Oftentimes I was by myself. And I, I remember one time this kid asked me, hey, how come you were praying to the flag today? <laughs> and that was a pretty good encapsulation of Christian nationalism because I would pray for God to, you know, deliver the country back to his his reign. And I would pray that it would return to obedience to uh, to his decree. And so uh, stories like that are are kind of just you know, all throughout the pages of the book, I, I talk about purity culture and how purity culture and Christian nationalism are just entangled in ways that we often overlook and how I had, a, you know, my high school sweetheart and I, um, you know, promised not to kiss before we got married. And, and, and not only because we thought that was important for sexual purity, but because we thought that was important for national renewal. And so, you know, those kind of inside stories um, are, are just kind of you know, mixed in with historical analysis and and uh, and political science. Um, you know, I, I a lot of my friends that you just mentioned are, have written amazing books as journalists, but they haven't lived it. And and I just wanted to give people a perspective of what it's like to live this culture and uh, to to kind of see see it through those eyes. And so, anyway, that's how it ended up: part memoir and part history. It's a fascinating quote from the book. You uh, you wrote, despite our growing body of literature that analyzes white Christian nationalism in the United States, there are no works that bring together firsthand accounts of the decade-long culture wars that set the stage for violent white Christian nationalism plaguing the country with historical analysis of events, leaders, and communities that prepared the troops and led the charge. I know you were kind of alluding it to it there, but your personal experience, but take us a little deeper there. You know, I, I really felt like I was prepared for war. Uh, you know, James Dobson said that uh, teenagers and young people are the, the foot soldiers in the second civil war. And I, I felt like I was prepared for that. Um, I was told that, you know, onward Christian soldiers was a really important um, uh, thing that we needed to live out. Uh, I was, uh, you know, part and parcel of, uh, of uh, praying for our country to return to God. I'll, I'll give you one example of this. Uh, as part of the ministry team for seven years, I went to a prayer meeting at, at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays, and uh, my church is is right there in, in Richard Nixon country. So if anybody listening is familiar with Southern California, that's where Richard Nixon comes from, and my hometown and my church are Richard Nixon's hometown and his his church. Well, famously, Richard, Nick, R Richard Nixon is Quaker. Me too. But our Quakerism was was all kind of filtered through an evangelical megachurch lens, and so uh, it, it, there's a lot, uh, that looks much, a lot more like a Rick Warren kind of ethos than, a uh, you know, a society of friends ethos when you visit the church. Well, in seven years of that meeting, we prayed, uh, for, you know, at the request of the congregants, the police, for the military, for, uh, victory over America's enemies, for safety at our borders. We didn't pray one time for peace. I, never did anyone request on their card that there would be world peace, that there would be no more war in the United States, no more violence. And that's a Quaker church, right? Quakers are pacifist. They're, they're people who have advocated for, for peace for, for how long. To me, that sticks out as a kind of way that you're, you're prepared uh, as a young person, as a Christian, to think of things in terms of a battle uh, rather than as a, way, uh, as a means, uh, the gospel as a means for instituting uh, peace on earth. And so a uh, lot more stories where that comes from, but that's kind of a taste of, of what I'm up to in the book. Everyone uh, wants to make this about Trump, right? But if you were to remove Trump from the equation, you still have this belief system, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I, so I think you have a belief system and I also think you have a set of stories 
and and I think some of those stories are more important than than belief or doctrine. So the stories are, this is a Christian nation, and we as white Christians founded it, and we need to get it back from all the people that it's been given to uh, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And so when you do the history, you can go from Barry Goldwater to the uh, John Birch Society, uh, which, you know, if, if anyone is thinking about QAnon and some of the conspiracies that are in our public square now, well, the John Birch Society is, a, is, the, is the precursor to all of that. Uh, and they were really the ones that helped get uh, Barry Goldwater uh, into the GOP presidential nomination. Uh, soon thereafter, we have, you know, the rise of Ronald Reagan and the ouster of Jimmy Carter. Uh, you know, a lot of you listening will know this, Baptists and 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 so on. But Jimmy Carter looks like the, the quintessential white Christian president, doesn't he? He teaches Sunday school. He married his high school sweetheart. He served in the military. Farmer, family man. Uh, what more do you want? And yet in 1979, 1980, he's he's ousted in part because of Jerry Falwell and, and Paul Weirich by a, a divorced Hollywood actor uh, whose wife had an astrologist uh, follow her around the White House, a man who was once uh, in advocacy for abortion, didn't have a great relationship with his older kids, so on and so on and so on. Uh, we don't have to look to Trump. You know, we can find figures uh, well ahead of him that signified that the goal was power. The goal was not piety. The goal was to dominate and to take dominion. And, uh, you know, that that's 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 true for seven decades before Trump. And so uh, we could sit here and talk for four hours about the 45th president. And and I'm sure people are tired of that. Uh, but I don't I don't think we need to to understand why we are where we are now, uh, at least on the whole. Now, those stories and those movements have only become more extreme. They've become more radicalized in the last decade in part because of the 45th president and in, in part in reaction to Barack Obama and his uh, his presidency. Nonetheless, there was a history propelling us toward this moment. And uh, I, I think that's one that can help us understand why we're here and, and where we may be going. Yeah, so let's take that concept of, you know, in spite of Donald Trump, um, white Christian nationalism is is a way of life that permeates in the culture and religious formation and, and politics. Talking to someone about this and challenging their worldview to them can quite literally feel like you're trying to take the oxygen from their lungs. Um, so what, why, why does it make it so complicated? Uh, why people tend to build up these walls as, as so much is coming out about kind of this way of life? Well, I, I think a couple of reasons. Um, I, I think there's a sense of of deep fear, and one of the things that I talk about, and this might be an aside, but you know, people ask me all the time, "How do you talk to someone who's in this in this world?" And I say, "Look, you can talk to them about how Q QAnon is just based on on falsities. You can talk about how the 45th president was a liar and a, and a crook. Uh, you can talk about." COVID and I mean, whatever, whatever battlefront you want to choose, you can do that. You can also ask them how they feel. You can say, hey, why are you so scared? Why are you so disappointed? Why are you so hurt? Uh, why are you hopeful if you are in any way? Um, what frightens you about raising kids, you know, in, in, in this era? If we ask those questions, um, we might get past the rhetoric and the stories and the, and the data and the the statistics they're going to cite that are probably erroneous. And we might actually get to their human 
concerns and, and they might let us get to ours in ways that we wouldn't if we just said, look, Ron DeSantis is a jerk and he's a liar and he's cruel and he shouldn't be uh, governor of Florida, much less president. Right. So I, I think that's one. Um, I think, two to answer your question about walls and, and things, I, I think there's a, a, a deep sense of apocalypticism on white Christian nationalism. Um, there's a deep sense of fear that if if the country doesn't change soon, it will be gone. And now that has been stoked, that has been primed by media empires, by pastors, by pundits. But it's the continual stoking of fear that the other is coming for you. The other is coming for you. The monster across the border, the monster uh, who is trying to get your kids, the monster who's at the drag queen story hour, the, the monster uh, who is coming from abroad, they will destroy you and this country if you don't act now. And here are all the ways that you're being lied to. That kind of fear is mixed with a nostalgia for the past that says it used to be good. It used to be great. We used to be a city on a hill. Now, nostalgia is is not necessarily historical. Nostalgia, you know, we all have it for our childhood or for our hometown or something, often relies on a picture of something that never actually existed, but that we longed for. And so we make it something that we think we remember when in fact we we're relying on a myth. And I see those two things that really at play in Christian nationalism, a sense of a myth and nostalgia for the past and an apocalyptic expectation for the future, which creates a present where there is just an urgency to act in extreme and radical and yes, violent ways. And so here we are in a political uh, moment that is rife with not just a vision, but with danger, uh, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, let's go right to that. The The title of the book, Preparing for War, draws up all kinds of images. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, just recently, uh, you know, at the, at the the gala for the, the young Republicans in New York, uh, some some comments came out. And this is kind of early December when. Uh, you know, spokesperson said, look, um, we need to prepare for war uh, on every level, economic, political, cultural, and yes, in the streets, because the left wants nothing more than power. And, and okay, so let's take that apart. And I think this is actually really telling. The justification for preparing for war on every level, including the streets, which to me, I decode as physical violence. We have to be ready for physical violence, if, if I decode that statement. The justification for that is because the left is so deranged that all they want is power, and they'll do nothing uh, short of, of getting it. If you explain it that way to your people, you're saying we're in an emergency situation. Don't think about acting normally. Don't think about acting in a way that's polite or is routine. You have got to act in a way that reflects the emergency and the urgency and the crisis of our moment because the other people across from you are willing to do anything they can to destroy you and the country now i if i if i wanted to take that that statement apart i could spend three hours saying that i don't think that's true uh i don't think that's what joe biden is doing or i don't think that's what chuck schumer or who whatever you know uh other leader we want to talk about. I mean, we we could spend three hours saying this is false. Here's why. What's more important to me is to say, if you're going to explain to me that you now are in a reality where the other side is trying to destroy you, you have just justified trying to destroy them. 
And so you're now in a place where you feel like if you act violently, if you act in a warlike manner, you are legitimated by God and country in doing so as a good citizen and as, as a good Christian. That to me is why we're in a situation that we we have to realize that there are people who are literally preparing for war. We could talk about the insurrection. We could talk about all kinds of little fires all over the country in terms of violence. But that little statement that, that happened, and, and at that gala, that young Republican gala, we had everybody from far-right, ultra-nationalist, white supremacists, uh, Jack Posobiec and, and these kinds of folks, to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Steve Bannon. And so um, this was not a fringe uh, event. If, if you want to talk about people who have no power, this was filled with people who have either been on staff at the White House, are current members of Congress, or have enormous audiences across the country. So yes, they are preparing for war. They just said it. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. There is a war for the heart of the church in America. Um, you know, I know that thinking of the church in America, it's a human construct of nationalism versus a universal church. And yet the church in America is a distinct uh, entity within the fabric of the American landscape. This fight for the heart of the church has its casualties. People are leaving the church in droves um, as a result of uh, the hypocrisy that exists between the way of Jesus versus the way they see it lived out. Others uh, from outside the faith are defining what it means to be Christian based on these white Christian nationalists, uh, drawing the assumption that all Christians are like these people. A war indicates there's two sides. So how how does the other side, the non-white Christian nationalists, fight for the heart of the church? Well, and I, I think this is where, so if we take your premise that there's two sides, um, I, I would draw up the sides as, right, one side wanting 
Christian supremacy, and in many cases, white Christian supremacy. I would say that there's another side that wants multiracial and uh, multi-ethnic and multi-religious democracy, right? Okay, so what that means is on one side, you have a lot of uniformity. You have an ethos of conformity. Everybody gets in line. They all vote the same way. They all agree on things, and they move forward, right? On the other side, you have a lot more diversity, and you have a lot more plurality, and that creates challenges. Now, I think that should be celebrated. I think that's a, a feature, not a bug, by all means. Um, but it also means that there's a lot more coordination to happen to build coalitions, right? So if you're fighting for um, the heart of the church in the United States where democracy is being threatened, then I think you have to consider that uh, fighting for the heart of the church also means fighting for the heart of democracy, which means that you know, loving your neighbor uh, extends to uh, fighting for the religious freedom of your neighbor. It means fighting for the freedom from religion for your neighbor. It means recognizing that um, the heart of the church extends into the public square in a way that uh, may not just be limited uh, in many ways to thinking about uh, the church proper, but in ways that exceeds that. Uh, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that that's something that um, that that you probably think about and talk about all the time. Um, but there, there cannot be a situation where uh, we have this kind of democracy where uh, we limit um, our focus, I think, within the church walls. Uh, it's easier said than done. It's easier uh, to kind of imagine than it is to practice. Um, but there are, as you know, and, and I know you you know this way better than I do, there's many historical precedents for this. There's many historical precedents for uh, Christians fighting for not only the freedom to practice their religion, but for all of uh, their neighbors and themselves to have the freedom from a government that it instills a religion in some way, whether that's a, a, a theocratic uh, kind of um, form that, you know, we see kind of looming on the horizon in some ways in this country at this moment, or even just in ways that, uh, you know, religion is kind of imposed on people uh, by way of SCOTUS or other things. So um, that's what I think of. Fighting for the heart of the church in this moment also means fighting for the heart of democracy uh, and loving one's neighbor in, in, the, in the grandest sense uh, of that term. At the end of the day, um, the name white Christian nationalism paints a visceral image of um, you know, a, a clientele, if you will, uh, that subscribes to this ideology. However, not all white Christians are, are nationalists in the sense of this new, almost Calvinistic religion of American evangelicalism, right? Of the, almost, They're almost view themselves as the elect. And yet, white and Christian have almost become synonymous with nationalism in that, in that regards. What, what's your advice for congregations and pastors wanting to differentiate or paint a different image of their authentic Jesus-centric faith in the face of what is such a, a boisterous and in-your-face approach to Christianity right now? Well, I, I think it's, first of all, making sure that, um, you know, in everything one does, people know um, who you are and what you stand for. Uh, and and I think that's, again, preaching to the choir. I know that that pastors are already doing that. But I'll just say from my perspective, you know, as somebody who uh, has taught at schools that are some of the most secular in the country, somebody who's the chair of the secularity and secularism group at the American Academy of Religion, 
you're spot on. There's a lot of wariness about Christianity in this country. And then if it's white Christianity, there's even more suspicion from, from just many, many people who have had either bad experiences or simply by dint of existing here, associate uh, those groups with what they take to be harmful and toxic forms of, of practicing their religion. Um, so I think there not only has to be a kind of um, willingness to sig signal one's principles and to do it in a, in a very explicit way, I think about the Baptist Joint Committee and uh, their Christians Against Christian Nationalism program and initiative. Um, I think that's really helpful because you're saying, I'm a Christian and I'm against Christian nationalism. I'd love to talk to you about how that works because you may not expect me, especially a white person, to have that perspective. Uh, you may not expect that to be uh, something that I would start the conversation with, but it is. Um, so I think that's I think that's number one. Um, I, I think number two, uh, there has to be a, a sense in which um, uh, the, the branding wars and the, the heart of American religion uh, includes for people in ways that perhaps uh, large swaths of Americans it has not uh, a vision of what it means to be uh, a mainline, a liberal, a progressive Christian. Um, you know, something I tell my students all the time is that in the 20s or the 30s or 40s, if I asked you to write down the three most famous Christians in the country, um, there's a very good chance that at least one, but maybe two, and maybe all three of them would have been from mainline denominations. They would have been people fighting for uh, what we call collective action or social justice. Uh, when we get to the 40s and 50s, it's probably still true. And yet over the last half century to three quarters of a century, when I, you know, the branding wars are such that when I ask students that question, they all, they always write down evangelicals. They always write, you know, I asked it would be George W. Bush or Tim Tebow or, uh, or something like that. Right. And so when I think of like the poor people's campaign, when I think of uh, the ways that, that mainline uh, and progressive Christians are acting in the world, um, I just think, gosh, I want more of that. <laughs> I want to see more coalitions built with uh, beyond uh, church denominations and uh, I just want to see them in front of me when I turn on Twitter, when I turn on the television, because I want to explain to my secular friends that there are so many millions of American Christians who live this way. And you have been convinced that the only form of white Christianity in this country comes through Robert Jeffress or Paula White or Donald Trump. And that's that's tragedy. That's you know, that's that that's not good. Uh, in terms of the kind of, as you mentioned earlier, the soul of a nation or the heart of the church. At, at the same time, we, we serve a risen Lord who calls us to peace. Um, peace is not submission to these challenges or to give in to white Christian nationalism. However, peacemakers seek to find ways to listen and converse with those who hold opposing views. So how do we do that in this current climate? I mean, what does that practically look like to try to bridge some of these divides that exist within our Christian worldview to see if there is a sense of, of peace and transformation that can come through um, mutually sharing and conversations and listening to one another? So I think on a, on a political level, um, I, my personal view is that our uh, one, we are now in a situation where one has to be willing to um, be explicit and act with decision when it comes to important issues, that uh, one has to be clear that they are for democracy, that they are for inclusion, that they are for the protection of all people, the humanity of all people, whether that comes to immigration, whether that comes to trans rights, whether that comes to uh, women's rights, um, 
reproductive rights and so on. On an interpersonal level, I think there is a chance for the kinds of listening and dialogue that you're talking about. Now, this this may extend beyond interpersonal to, uh, you know, to congregation level or uh, or group level things. But when I get to that level, I, I go back to what I said a couple of minutes ago about emotion and feeling, um, because what I want to start with is not why do you think this thing about this X important issue? Why do you have this misguided idea about this really fundamental aspect of being a human being? What I want to start with is, hey, I'm scared. This is a scary time to be alive. We have climate change. We have um, a lot of upheaval economically and, and politically. Um, what scares you? What frightens you? Talk to me about it. I, I, want, to, I want to understand you know, what you see as uh, threats to your 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 life, your kid's life, your congregation's life, your community's life. What do you hope for? Like, what is it that you want for us to have? You know, I, don't talk to me about policies. Like, I want to make sure the border's closed, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. I, I just mean, what do you want in terms of like uh, a good way of life? What would that look like to you? If we can talk that way, again, I think we veered off the track of warring uh, belief systems or even like doctrines or data because we all know by now i think we should that the people in these conversations are often getting their information from wildly different places and it's really hard to convince uh your uncle or your your friend or your spouse or whoever it is that their their uh, entire source is just uh erroneous and that they need to stop listening to that otherwise they'll never know anything what's easier is to say you're human and i'm a human um Let's talk about hope, fear, anger, resentment, grievance. Who do you resent? Like, why do you think they're at fault? Um, what do you think that they've done that has destroyed uh, something good? If we get there, then we might have a chance for a space to open up for actual understanding, for actual discussion, for actual empathy. And then maybe, right? we're on some sort of path, probably a very long one, but some sort of path towards the kind of peace that you're talking about. What do you hope your readers will do after processing your book? Well, I, I hope two things. I think I hope one, um, you know, there's this great quote by Charles Creel, who's a, a activist and politician and, and filmmaker. And he says, you know, the best position to be in if you're in war is, is if your enemy doesn't know they're in war. And, and I really feel like um, there's a lot of folks uh, who, who don't realize the kinds of decades long attempts there has been to really um, thwart American democracy for all in order to maintain a certain uh, social and political order. And so I hope that people will realize after reading the book that we're in a certain situation. And um, it's a situation where there's a, a growing movement of people for whom democracy is not a sacred value, that if democracy has to be martyred for their uh, power to be achieved, then that's fine. Democracy is not sacred. The will of the people is not sacred. The majority is not sacred. Values that we might consider fundamentally American, such as equality and independence, uh, and liberty for all are also not sacred. And so if that's true, we have to we have to realize the situation we're in uh, if we're going to get anywhere near um, making sure that we have something sem resembling American democracy going forward. 
Number two, I, I hope that they will um, have a better understanding of the people who live in that world. Because I, I, I lived in it. I was a Christian nationalist. I was a minister uh, in this kind of, uh, you know, part of the the American Christian uh, spectrum. I hope they see how people can get into that worldview, how they can buy it, how they can see it as viable, and why it's so hard to leave it. Because it really is. Um, if you give every aspect of yourself to a, a religious movement in this way, um, when you leave it, you have to reform every aspect of yourself. And that's just really, really difficult. And so my hope is they'll have a, a sense of understanding of the kind of political uh, urgency that I think we need to have right now. I also hope they'll have a, a, a sense of empathy that will help them in the kinds of conversations that we just talked about, those interpersonal conversations where uh, space and empathy feel impossible sometimes, but uh, really, I don't think uh, need to be. You know, you write a book, uh, you go through the process of pitching it to a publisher, it goes through the process of editing, and then it's finally produced. What since you last wrote, you know, the last bit of this book has gone on and what you said, man, I really wish I would have added this to the book and result as a result of this stuff going on. Or is everything so else just say it doesn't surprise you, right? It's just it's the same old, same old. It, I mean, there's just so much. I mean, you know, obviously, I was not able to include a, a lot of the recent happenings with SCOTUS. Um, and so obviously, the Dobbs case and the overturning of Roe is a whole, I mean, that's a whole chapter <laughs> or more. It's obviously a whole book, but uh, I, I wish I had a chance to to really dig into that and connect it to what I've I've talked about. But there's other SCOTUS cases on religious liberty, and I and again I don't have to tell you this, but SCOTUS cases that I think have really changed the landscape and restricted religious liberty uh, in the country and really favored uh, a certain kind of vision of Christianity in in the United States. Um, you know, uh, so many things. Um, CPAC in Hungary and Viktor Orban. Um, I would love to just be able to expand on that because I don't think people realize what a model he is for the American right. Um, uh, you know, Patriot Front um, tried to basically massacre people at a Pride event in Idaho this summer, and that was not an isolated incident. Um, drag queen story hours are becoming places of hostility. Um, I, I just, you know, one of the things I think people envision when they hear war is civil war and that that has to be north versus south otherwise it's not civil war right and i guess one of the things that you know if i sat down right now to write five more chapters is i feel like i'd be writing about little skirmishes uh at various borders at, uh, across the country that are really important and are really affecting people's lives and then one day we'll probably see as part of a larger set of battles uh, and perhaps even a war but if we don't if we just accept or, or or see civil war as north versus south, we miss the fact that someone in your state, North Carolina, just took out a power grid to stop a story hour, right? We miss Patriot Front at Idaho. We miss um, all of the ways that we we've, we've gotten reports recently of the throngs of police officers who are part of white supremacists and white nationalist organizations. We forget that the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. We're conspiring uh, ahead of January 6th and so on and so on and so on. So all of those things are things that I fortunately get to talk about on my show every week. But I I, I wish, you know, uh, could have gone in the book, but you have to stop writing at some point and uh, you could only include so many things. So yeah, that's how it goes. 
Well, that's what publishers like to hear, right? There's going to be a volume two and maybe hopefully we're done with it after volume two because we've I handled wish, it all. We solved all I, the problems. I wish there didn't need to be, you know, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so some, yeah, I, I wish we didn't need volume two or even volume one, but there you go. Well, our guest is Brad Onishi. The book is Preparing for War. You can stay connected with Brad by visiting bradonishi.com. Brad, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to see that January 6th was not the last stand of a dying faction. It was the first violent battle and what they foresee as the coming civil war. Thank you so much for great questions and just for, for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your work. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study, title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.